Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Meg Bowles from The Moth, and I'll be your host this time. The Moth hosts live events around the country where we invite people to take the stage and share true personal experiences from their lives. Today, we bring you three stories from those events, tales of high risk, loss, uncertainty, and faith. Our first story is from Shannon Kaysen. Shannon told this in an evening we produced in Kalamazoo, Michigan, presented by Michigan Radio. The theme of the night was Between Worlds. Here's Shannon Kaysen, live at the Moth. When I was young, I loved playing fun and games. We would flip quarters at the lunch table in high school in Detroit, or pitch them off the wall. Whoever got closest won. When I went to college at Michigan State University, we would shoot craps in one of my friend's dorm rooms. Be a bunch of us guys, most of us from Detroit, all in that little room, talking stuff, smoking, drinking, bringing the hood to Michigan State University. (laughs) He had this little portable pool table that was perfect for shooting craps. Guys had to have a style to their dice roll. It was like a signature, you know, guys listening to him, blowing on him, doing a little dance or whatever. Me, I'm always simple and understated, just click, clack, roll, snap. I loved it. I was a decent student, loved basketball and hip-hop. Gambling was my little secret. I remember once, over summer vacation, I lost all my summer job money going to the Windsor Casino because you could go under 21. I'd be 19 years old at the blackjack table with these grandparents. <laughs> when my mom asked what happened to all my money that summer, I lied and told her I spent it hanging out with my friends. I felt bad for losing my money and I, I, I felt worse for lying to my mama. I'm a mama's boy. Lying to my mom, you know, that's not fun. Then I started gambling all the time. This is when, especially when Detroit Uh, Built all those casinos, you know, all these beautiful casinos with bright lights smack dab in the middle of Detroit. You know, Detroit was sure to become a top tourist city of the Midwest. It was (laughs) the Vegas of the Midwest. Not quite, huh? So I, I graduated from college, and I'm working at a bank. It's one of these grocery store banks I, uh, in Farmer Jack. I manage it, and as a manager, um, the dress code was you had to wear a suit and tie. The tellers wore polo shirts. I love wearing the suit and tie, you know, professional. I'm a professional. By that time, 
gambling, had my checking account overdrawn. I was living with my sister. I was eating ramen noodles on a regular basis. When I didn't have money, I had to comp, so I had more comps than cash. I eat at the uh, casino. At work, we had 20,020s in the vault to refill the ATM, and we kept 30,000 in hundreds for the customer's checks on Friday. It was Tuesday, and I started thinking. We never did, like, like the tellers, we weren't a busy branch. The tellers didn't have to buy money from the bank all the time, I mean, from the vault all the time, and we didn't, uh, we didn't do the dual vault control because everybody just trusted everybody. And it was Tuesday, and, and, and a thought just dropped into my head. I could take a little money, borrow it, so I can play a little bit. Tired of eating noodles. I could just borrow a little, hit a lick, win a little, put it back the next day. It was just a harmless thought. I took the whole $50,000. Won't fit in your, your pants pocket. I know, I tried it. So I got 10,000 here, 10,000 here. I even got a sexy bulge in my underwear. I tell the tellers I'm going to lunch. I go to the Motor City Casino. It's a short drive from where I work. I used to go there for lunch all the time. When I didn't have money, I had comps for the buffet. But this time, I have money, a lot of it, $50,000, stuffed in every pocket, even in my underwear. I sit down at the blackjack table. I buy in for 10,020s. It takes them a little time to count 10,020s. It brings a small crowd, which I don't care for. I like to be invisible, understated. And then the people who gather around you to watch, they just lost their money. That's why they got time to sit there and watch you play. They don't want to see me win. They just want to see somebody stupider than them. <laughs> but I'm winning. Doubling, 21. Splitting aces, blackjack, blackjack. I'm winning. I plan, the plan is, you know, if you win, leave. But you feel invincible with $10,000 in your underwear. <laughs> so I start getting cocky and losing and losing. And then the 10000 is gone. The crowd, they act sad, but you know they feel better about themselves. They just want to see a train wreck. I pull out another 10000 I'm chasing. I burn through that 10000 fast. I get up from the table, and, and the crowd is acting sad. And I'm thinking, I got to get away from these losers. Losing is contagious. I, I, I'm going to go up to the high roller room on the top floor. You know, I'm feeling bad, but my pocket's still 30,000 heavy. I just got to brush this off, change my game up, change my strategy. Backer, I sit the whole 30 on the table. Takes them a while to count that much. Brings out some guys who have to wear suits like me. I do good. 
I'm doing good. I want close to the 50000 back. Then I get a call from work. I let it go to voicemail. It wasn't until I got that call that I realized what I had done. I just took $50,000 from my job to go to the casino at lunchtime. I was just caught up in the moment. This wasn't real, but it was real. That call meant I could be in some serious trouble. I just want to get this money back. I'm, I'm, I'm in a hurry. I'm thinking. I, I put the biggest bet I had played up. I don't know why so much. 20 grand. I just want to get out of here. If I win this bet, I can get out of here. The dealer deals the cards. I, I'm back down to 30. Then the 20, then the 10. I noticed there's this old man staring at me from one of the other tables, shaking his head. I just remember that old dude like shaking his head at me. I get up with a few chips and I I know I can't win $50,000 back with these two orange chips in my hand. I walk out through the the lights, the sounds, the people, the smoke, and out the door to fresher air. I listen to the voicemail, ain't even want nothing. It's like one of the tellers wanted me to bring her back something. I don't go back to work, I mean, why? I just drive around Detroit until it's late. Drive down Woodward, down through Cass Corridor. There's this school that's being torn down, kind of how I felt, torn down. Being real with you, it's, it's, it's like this. Um, in Detroit, like a lot of my childhood friends, serve time, serving time, or worse, but that was never for me. I went to college. I wear a suit every day to work. I'm a professional. Yeah, I like to gamble, but it's just for fun. You know, this wasn't supposed to happen. Eventually, I called my job, and I remember, uh, they know by now that the money is missing. I remember I'm talking to the regional president, and he says something surprising. He says, uh, Shannon, don't do anything stupid. It's only money. It's not the end of the world. You don't know how much I appreciate that guy for saying that. I don't even remember his name. I called my mom. I called my sister, this girl I was dating. Get a hotel room. I get a hotel room by the mall with that leftover money I had. And um, I invite everybody to come visit me. My mom, my sister, the girl I was dating. And I go to the mall and I get some ruby jewelry, like a necklace for my mom. K Jewelers had a sale on rubies. This was in July. (laughs) I'm thinking I'm going to be gone for a long time. You know, this is something for her to remember me by. When they show up, I sit everybody down and I, I do this little intervention on myself. And give my mom the ruby necklace 
and tell her what happened. And she doesn't accept the ruby necklace, of course. Um, my mom says that she, she, I should be ashamed of myself and that I was raised better than that. And you don't know how much that hurt my mom telling me something like that, which is true. It could have went a lot worse than what it did. One day in jail, five years probation, the bank didn't want to destroy me. That regional manager might have had a, a part in that. Um, my family supported me. I got married. It's been hard, but I paid it back. I wish I could say the threat of jail, pain my mother felt, the normalcy of a wife and a baby changed me and everything became happy. Wish I could say that. But this is life and it's not all fun and games. Started going to the meetings. And the lady at the meetings said, um, addiction is insidious. I'm being real with you, I, I had to look it up. <laughs> I looked it up. Yeah, insidious. That's a good word. Shannon Kaysen is a writer and storyteller and is currently living in Chicago. He's been banned from the financial industry for life, but he says he never enjoyed banking much anyway. Maggie Sino, the director who worked with Shannon on his story, recently sat down with him to talk more about his experience. It was a big decision for me because... Um that that story, uh, some of my family members don't know that story because it just puts me in a bad light. But, you know, me, I think storytelling is, is real more than anything. You know, if you can't touch the vulnerable places that you can you can you can feel the strength to kind of go there. I mean, it's it's been empowering for me to tell that story, and I and I've told that story, and I've had people come afterwards and say, you know, their son has dealt with some problem, or or their husband have dealt with some problem, or grandmother, you know. So the thing is, you know, being, I mean, taking the hit, you know, and saying I I tell I tell the nasty parts and the ugly parts sometimes, you know. I, I, I love hearing those stories too because everything isn't pretty and glossy and some of it is, man, you don't want to even look up under it and look at it, you know. But um, but when you can get to the point where you can, I mean, it's been years past since that, so when you can get to the point to share it, I mean, it's a powerful experience for me and I think it can be a, a good experience for a person listening too. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's so amazing about this story actually is you tell it in such in such an honest way that it's interesting to hear you saying like, hey, I look like a bad guy and all that stuff because, I mean, it's definitely, you know, something really 
intense that happened and intense that you did, but you also open yourself up in a way that I think everybody can understand and identify with. I had an interview in, in uh, where was that, in uh, Philadelphia. Great job, too. I was just getting in a relationship, just had a new baby. I'm like, okay, I need this job. And got all the way through the end. They hired me and everything. You don't tell a person, hey, I embezzled a bunch of money from my last job, you know. So I I didn't really bring that up. But I thought they had already checked and it kind of went through and all the way to the end. Hmm, we just uh, found something on the (laughs) – and I'm like, man, it would get to this part. But it's probably best. That's why telling this story – if anybody, you know, it's out. So I don't, I don't have to try to hide it anymore, you know, just like right. let my story be my story. And if opportunities come for me, you know who you got. You know, I made mistakes in my life and, you know, you didn't. You can find more of Maggie's interview and a link to Shannon's podcast called Shannon Kaysen's Homemade Stories at our website, themoth.org. In a moment, we'll hear how a family tragedy turned into a surreal confrontation with law enforcement. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Meg Bowles. Before we play this next story from Prina Boudreaux, I just wanted to give you a warning that it's a difficult one. It deals with a family's loss of a child and may not be suitable for everyone. We first heard about Prina when she called our pitch line. We were all so moved by her honesty and courage that we invited her to share the story on our main stage in New York. Here's Prina Boudreaux, live at the mall. Several months ago, I met with a mother who had just lost her baby boy. I had heard about her through a mutual friend. She had asked if I would sit down with her and give her some hope that there was life after a tragedy like this. I felt this huge weight on my shoulders. I didn't know if I was a success story, if I had made it through the storm and come out on the other side okay. I wasn't sure I was really ready to help someone else yet. My story started with a phone call from my husband, Chris. He was in the emergency room with our 10-month-old daughter, Sophia. I kept asking if she was okay, and he kept saying she was, but that I needed to get there quickly. He kept saying she was okay, but something deep down inside of me told me my daughter was already gone. I ran in through the emergency room doors and I was screaming for Sophia like a mad woman. And it was like they were waiting for me. The nurses, the patients in the waiting room, they were just sort of sitting there staring at me like they knew something that I didn't know. They led me into this small room and Chris was sitting in there. A doctor came in, he knelt down in front of us and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your baby is dead. I'm so sorry. And then he got up and left. And I remember thinking it was such a strange way for him to say it that he didn't find a nicer way of saying it. I looked at his face and there was no emotion, no sadness, nothing. 
But I guess they know that after that first sentence, nothing else matters and nothing else will be remembered. So just give the news and leave. I think in that moment I left myself. I felt all my hopes and my dreams for my daughter just slowly float away, like I had released a balloon and had to stand there staring at it with no chance of ever getting it back. The nurse asked if I wanted to hold Sophia and I said no right away. But then almost as quickly I demanded to see her, to hold her. It was like some rational part of me was rearing its head, telling me I would forever regret it if I didn't hold her. They sat me in an old brown rocking chair. Chris stood next to me and my mom, who appeared just out of nowhere. She grabbed me by the shoulders. She looked into my eyes and she said, this is the worst thing that will ever happen to you, Prina. It doesn't get any worse than this and I'll never forget those words. And then Sophia was in my arms. She was swaddled too tightly in too many blankets and she felt much too heavy. But her face looked just the same, like she was taking a nap. My mom tells me I told her I loved her, that she would always be my baby, that I was so sorry we would never get to see her curly hair grow. I don't remember when they took her from me. But after I sat there for God knows how long with empty arms, I remember thinking, what are we still doing here? Why are we still here? She was gone, so what were we waiting for? And then suddenly and urgently, I wanted to leave. Because it occurred to me, they were going to take me away. Surely they had to think this was my fault. And I was right, because just minutes after finding out that Sophia had died, I was questioned by a female police investigator. They led me into this other room, and I noticed a tape recorder sitting in the center of the table, and I was immediately very scared. She asked me questions about my pregnancy, and I thought, did I do something during my pregnancy to cause my 10-month-old baby to die? She asked me about my day and I told her that I had been at work, that Sophia had been with our regular babysitter. She asked me about foods and medications, just a whole bunch of questions, some that I couldn't answer. And then she let me go. And somehow we made it back from the emergency room to our house. And I remember sitting in the car watching Chris move from window to window in the house. He was gathering some things for us since apparently we couldn't stay there. And I watched the police officers wander alongside him. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a sign of things to come for me and Chris. I would sit there practically catatonic and he would rush around making everything okay. But because I trusted him implicitly, I let him. And then Chris appeared at the car door. He was holding our two-year-old daughter, Annabelle. She was wearing her Dora the Explorer pajamas and she was clutching her green blanket. 
He hoisted her into the car and buckled her in. And I remember I didn't have anything for her. I didn't talk to her. I didn't comfort her. She didn't ask where we had been or where we were going so late. But I remember her asking why Sophia's car seat was gone. It was about a week after the funeral when I was sitting on the computer with my brother. The phone rang. It was the female police investigator who had questioned me in the hospital. She, had, she said they had some more results from the autopsy and could Chris and I come in separately to answer some questions tomorrow. And those words just stung. Questions separately tomorrow. I tried to sound calm and I said, of course we would come in, but then I hung up the phone. It was like all hell broke loose. I ran around the house screaming that they were going to arrest me. I remember my legs just gave out and I fell onto my brother, begging him to tell me I was a good mother, begging him to tell me I wasn't going to jail. My brother said that it couldn't wait until the next day, that we needed to take care of it that afternoon. So somehow arrangements were made and I wound up at the police station with, my, with Chris that afternoon. They led us into this interrogation room and something about it told me to run. Run like hell and never come back. Something was just very, very wrong. But Chris and I stayed in that room. We stayed because we had nothing to hide. The female police investigator came in and she said that they had received some more information about the autopsy, that a bruise had been discovered at the base of Sophia's neck. They weren't saying for sure that this was the cause of her death, but they were leaning towards it, maybe that they would know more when the official autopsy reports came back. She could not have said anything to shock us more. She said that they knew there had to have been an accident. And she just kept asking us over and over what had happened. I thought back to the week before when Chris had taken a phone call from the hospital. And I turned to him and I said, you said it was natural causes. You said they said it was natural causes. The police investigator interrupted and said, no, it was never said that it was natural causes. That was never said. But Chris, you said it was natural causes. And my mom said, what's natural about a 10 month old baby dying? The room went totally quiet. I had lost my ability to speak. All I could do was shake violently. I can't describe the type of fear that something like this puts into you. It makes you question everything you've ever known to be true. In the days that followed, I questioned everything. I questioned myself, my babysitter, my husband, I remember laying in bed with Chris one night and I turned to him and I said, did you give her a bath and something happened? He just said no. And then I heard him softly crying into his pillow. 
and I didn't care that he was crying. I didn't care because I just wanted to know what had happened to my baby. It was a couple weeks later. It felt like a couple months, but it was a couple weeks, and Chris appeared home in the middle of the afternoon from work unexpectedly. I could tell from the look on his face that the official autopsy reports were back. We were supposed to make an hour-long drive to the police station to get the results. But about five minutes into the drive, I couldn't take it anymore. I told him to pull over, that I wanted to call and get the results. So there, we were standing in the tall grass, huddled over a cell phone on the side of the highway. We learned that Sophia had died of SIDS. This wave of relief washed over me. That sounds so cliche, I know. But I could literally feel myself, my mind, my body, my spirit change. It was like everything was right again. I'd been wrong to ever question my babysitter, myself, my husband. But I also felt disappointment. Disappointment that I'd been allowed to get worked into such a state that I couldn't be there for Chris when he needed me the most. Chris and I would later meet with Sophia's pediatrician. He would tell us that there was no medical evidence to support what the police had told us. There was no bruise on the base of her neck. There had been no accident. The police had been bluffing. And he was furious that they had been allowed to do what they did to us. They added to the trauma of an already very traumatic situation. But I'm struck with how far I've come in the past five years. I've had two more babies, Eve and Alec. I'm back to work, I'm writing, I'm being productive, and I'm having truly happy moments every single day. Chris and I are beating the odds, we're still together. So maybe you can say that I'm a success story. I sat across from this mother who had just lost her baby boy. And it was like I was standing on the ocean shore, staring out at this woman drowning. And I wanted to throw her a rope and pull her back in, stop the current from taking her away. But then I realized I'm not on the ocean shore but that I too am in the ocean, just treading water. But maybe now I was strong enough to help her. Thank you. Brenna Boudreaux is a writer and an adjunct English professor at Minnesota State University. After the show, we asked Prina what it was like telling such a difficult story in front of a live audience. You know, ap after I tell my story, I'm usually um, confronted with some people who were in the audience who it really struck a nerve with. 
and um, usually they're very grateful to me for telling the story and making it um, known what we went through. And it's incredibly healing for me and peaceful to know that I'm, in my small way, helping somebody else who might go through this. Prina Boudreaux and her husband Chris continue to be strong advocates for Faith's Lodge, a healing retreat in Wisconsin that serves families who have lost a child. You can visit our website, themoth.org, to find a link to Prina's blog and learn more. As I mentioned, we first heard Prina's story when she called our pitch line. If you have a story you'd like us to hear, go to our website, click on Tell a Story, and it'll take you on a step-by-step how-to so you can leave us a two-minute version of a story you'd like to share. When we come back, we'll hear a story of one scientist's struggle to find proof of God's existence. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Meg Bowles. Our last story is from Christoph Koch. Christoph is a neuroscientist and the chief scientific officer for the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle. He told this story at our annual collaboration with the World Science Festival. Here's Christoph Koch, live at the Moth. It was in the late 1990s, and um, I was course director at the Marine Biological Lab in uh, Woods Hole in Cape Cod, directing a class on how computers can be used to uh, learn uh, about the brain. And we're celebrating with a boisterous evening with a big uh, dinner party and a live rock and roll band. And I freely indulged in, um, in dancing and drinking. But then I grew restless. I'd read the previous couple of days a book by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. (laughs) This is not funny. (laughs) Uh, About how modernity had killed God and uh, how uh, we're all God's grave diggers and about divine putrefaction. And this had reawakened this long simmering conflict I've had between my religious upbringing and my um, profession as a scientist. So I wandered off. I left the party and I wandered off through the forest to the beach in Cape Cod. And um, when I arrived at the beach, was, uh, there was a crescent moon, which was partly obscured by the clouds that were being chased across the sky by the, the wind, which it's picked up to storm. And the storm had also driven the, the whites of the waves towards the land. And it was this desolate, empty beach, you know, just a couple of boulders. In the background, there were the, the, the trees that were swaying, very menacing. And uh, I was quite, ex- I, had to, I went through this existentialist crisis, and I shouted out to the sky, God, wo bist du? See, God speaks German, of course. <laughs> I was... Um, I was uh, shouting for God to reveal himself. Here I was trying for many years to desperately believe in him, but I never had a sign of his existence. So I, I, was, I, was, I was debating with him. Well, it was a very one-sided debate. There was a problem. I was debating with him that to, sh- to, to show himself, I needed a booming voice from the sky. I wanted a burning bush. I, I wanted some sign. And 
and I increased, you know, because I drank a lot, I was very bellicose and was very insistent. <laughs> and, and then suddenly, uh, the earth erupted in front of me, and uh, there was this bright light that, that dazzled me. And this very angry form metamorphosed just right in front of me, just materialized. And it was shrieking and yelling, get the fuck off this beach. <laughs> so God had metamorphosed from a, into an angry camper. He was trying to sleep there and I'd awaken him and I hadn't noticed him before. So I grew up uh, happy, raised by my, by my uh, parents in the best liberal Catholic tradition, where by and large science, including um, evolution by natural selection, was accepted as explaining the facts of the world. I, um, I was an altar boy, I learned to say the prayers in, in Latin, and I, loved, I, I really loved uh, the masses and the passion and the requiems of Orlando de Lassos and Verdi and, uh, and Bach. For my, uh, as a teenager, my dad gave me a five-inch reflector telescope. And I still re uh, very viscerally remember the night when I, on the top of my house, I, point, I calculated actually where the planet Uranus should be in the sky. And I pointed the telescope at the azimuth and the elevation, and right there it appeared. And I, I remember this incredible feeling of elation I felt, this, this, this ordered universe that I found myself in, where I can actually compute these things, like this, this blue planet that gently drifted into view. But then over the years, I, I began to reject a lot of the, the things that, that the Catholic Church told me. See, on, on, on the one hand, there were these things my parents and my Jesuit teacher told me. On the other hand, I, I learned to, uh, to listen to the beat of a very different drama in, my, in lectures and in books and in the lab. So I had this, this explanation for things in the world for the Sunday, and then I had another explanation for the rest of the week. There was a sacred explanation and there was this profane explanation. And on the one hand, I was told, I sort of, uh, my life was given meaning by, by putting it in the context of this large scale, you know, there's this large creation of God and I'm just a puny part of it. On the other hand, science actually explained actual facts about the real universe I found myself in. And so for many decades, I, I had this profound uh, split of reality. And then I met uh, Francis Crick. So Francis, uh, I, met Fra I first encountered Francis under an apple tree, doing what he loved best, which was uh, talking and discussing about biology. The Francis Crick was the, um, uh, the physical chemist who, um, who discovered the double helical structure of the molecule of heredity DNA, a discovery for which he was given the, no uh, the Nobel Prize. It was really to him and his uh, guiding intellect that the field of molecular biology looked in their giddy and exuberant race to discover the, the universal code of life. And when that goal was achieved in the late 60s, he shifted his interest from molecular biology to um, trying to understand how consciousness arises out of the physical brain. And, um, and that's when I encountered him, and we grew quite fond and close to each other. We worked together for, for close to two decades. We, uh, we published two books, uh, we, uh, we wrote uh, two dozen papers and we published several books and he dedicated his last book to me. Francis also sort of epitomizes the, the historical animosity between religion and science. And this, um, 
this really grew legendary uh, in 1961 when Francis resigned very publicly, you can read about it, uh, from, the, from Churchill College in, in Cambridge, England. Um, at the occasion of the Churchill College um, constructing a, um, a, ch a chapel on college ground, Francis felt uh, that a, a new college dedicated to science and mathematics and engineering, there was no place for superstition. Winston Churchill, in whose name the, the college had been founded after the war, tried to appease Francis and wrote him a letter pointing out that the financial means to, uh, for the construction of the cathedral would be, uh, of the chapel would be raised entirely by private means, that would be open uh, to uh, people of any faith and that nobody would be forced to attend. Francis replied by, uh, by return post, proposing the construction of a brothel. A bordel, it would, the construction of the bordel would be financed entirely by private means. It would be open to all men, no matter what their religious conviction, and no man would be forced to attend. And he actually included a check for down payment. So uh, this ended the, the correspondence between the two great men. By the time I knew Francis, his, um, his um, animosity vis-a-vis -vis religion had become muted. And although he knew I was raised Catholic and I sporadically attended Mass, he um, never probed. I think finally he was, um, he was a kind man and he, didn't, he wanted to spare me the, the embarrassment for groping for an explanation. In particular, as my belief uh, obviously didn't interfere with our quest to understand how, how the conscious mind arises out of the brain within an entire natural uh, framework. Um, and for emotional reasons, I wasn't ready to give up my, my, my faith, and I was also afraid, I was simply afraid that his searing intellect would be, uh, I, I couldn't be matched my, by, by anything I could, I could sort of, um, I could explain why I believed things. Many years in our, in our collaboration, when I visited him in, in San Diego where he lived, he told me in a very matter-of-fact tone that his colon cancer, he had had a previous bout with colon cancer, probably had returned, and that he was expecting a call from his oncologist later on that day um, discussing the results of some tests they had run the previous days. I was actually with him in the study, that's how we worked, in the study at home, uh, when the call came, confirming that uh, cancer had returned with a vengeance. And um, he stared off for a minute or two into space after he put down the phone. And um, then he returned to our conversation about, about brains. At lunch, he discussed his diagnosis with his wife talking about what needs to be done to accommodate him. But for the rest of the day, we worked. That was it. There was no doom and gloom. There was no gnashing of teeth. There was no tears. It, was, it, it, it impressed me immensely, this, this stoic, I mean, this living embodiment of a, of a stoic, of this ancient stoic faith, except what you can't change. A couple of months later, when again I visited him, we went as usually through his large correspondence pertaining to consciousness. And there was a letter from a, from a famous British philosopher confessing to Francis, was a personal letter, confessing to Francis his, his, uh, the philosopher's abject fear when faced with the idea of his own mortality. He wrote, quote, 
I feel like an animal, cornered, absolutely terrified, panicky, unable to think clearly when contemplating my own demise. And then I, I finally brought up the strength to ask him, apropos that letter, Francis, how do you feel about, about your diagnosis, studiously avoiding any mentioning of the word death? And he again, he was very much down to earth. He said something like, everything that has a beginning must have an end. Those are the facts. I don't like them, but I've accepted them, and I will not take any heroic measures to prolong my life beyond the inevitable. I am resolved to live my life out uh, with intact mind. And so he did. Over the next uh, two years, as, his, uh, as the cancer weakened his body, but never his spirit, we continued to write. We finished my book. And I, I was just immensely, immensely impressed by, by how he could deal with this. And I, I, of course, reflected on my own future demise and w whether I would be able to have this, this calmness, this composure to meet my own end. Suffering from the debilitating effect of uh, chemotherapy, I heard him one day on the phone talking with somebody who was trying to convince him to sign off on the construction of a bobblehead of him. Okay, because Francis Crick is a very famous figure, they wanted to construct a bobblehead of him. <laughs> At some point, I heard him put down the phone. He walked past me, shuffling past me on the way to the bathroom. When he returned several minutes later to resume the conversation, he just sort of dryly remarked to me in passing, well, now I can truly say this idea made me throw up. <laughs> Finally, he called me to say, uh, Christoph, um, the correction to our paper we're working on turned out to be our last paper. We're going to be delayed. I have to go to the hospital for a couple of days, but don't worry. In the hospital, he continued to dictate um, corrections to this paper to his uh, assistant. Two days later, he passed away. And uh, his wife, Odile, told me how on his deathbed, he had this hallucinatory conversation with me involving neurons and their connection to consciousness. A scientist literally to his last breath. Given the 40 years age difference, we fell into this very natural father-son relationship. And uh, we, we, we became very close, close comp intellectual companions. And, and he became my hero for the unflinching way he dealt with, with, with mortality and, and, uh, and um, aging. With a view towards the inevitable, he gave me a, a, life, a huge portrait of him, a life-size portrait of him. Um, of Francis sitting in a wicker chair, gazing out at me with a twinkle in his eyes, signed, for Christoph Francis keeping an eye on you. <laughs> and so it does today in, in my office. I've never had another encounter with God, nor do I expect to, for the God I now believe in is, is much closer to Spinoza's God than the God of Michelangelo's painter or the God of the Old Testament. I... I'm sort of saddened by the belief of my, by the loss of my belief in, 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 in religion. It's like leaving forever the comfort of your childhood home, suffused with the warm glows and, and fond memory. But I do believe we all have to grow up. It's difficult for many, it's unbearable to the few. But we have to see the world as it really is, and we have to stop thinking in terms of, in terms of magic. As Francis would have put it, this is a story for grown men, not a consoling tale for children.
And so here I am, seven years later. I'm a highly organized pattern of, of, of mass and energy, one of seven billion. In any objective accounting of the universe, I'm practically nothing. And soon I'll, I'll cease to be. But um, the, the certainty of my own demise, the certainty of my own death, sort of somehow makes my life more meaningful. And I think that is as it should be. I find myself born into this universe. It's a wonderful place. It's a strange place. It's also a scary and sometimes lonely place. What I try to do every day in my work, I try to discern through its noisy, through its noisy manifestation. I try to discern the people, the dogs, trees, mountains, stars, everything I love. I try to discern the eternal music of the spheres. Thank you very much. That was Christoph Koch. Christoph has spent many years researching the neural basis of consciousness and the subjective mind. His most recent book is entitled The Quest for Consciousness, A Neurobiological Approach. You can see pictures of Christoph and Francis Crick and the other storytellers featured in this hour by visiting our website, themoth.org. While you're there, check out our event section and see if we're hosting a main stage or story slam in your area. That's it for this hour. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time for the Moth Radio Hour. this hour was Meg Bowles. The stories in the show were directed by Meg and Maggie Sino. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Jennifer Hickson, with production support from Jenna Weiss-Berman and Brandon Ector. Special thanks to Tracy Day and Brian Green at the World Science Festival. Moth Stories Are True is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from The Whitest Boy Alive, Lawless Music, and Mike Oldfield. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme 
is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.